I'm Liz Logan, and you're listening to Collecting Culture, a podcast about passionate collectors and the objects they love. Many of us enjoy building our collections piece by piece. It's this challenging and sometimes thrilling endeavor. We're searching for each object that we want and trying to find the thing that's just the right fit. But then there's a totally different way of becoming a collector. What if you inherit an entire collection? Our guest in this episode, Stephanie Lake, uh, had that exact thing happen to her. As a graduate student in the 90s, she became friends with the legendary fashion designer Bonnie Cashin. Cashin had her own company through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and she is widely regarded as the mother of American sportswear. Stephanie was writing her thesis on Cashin's legacy in the fashion world, but along the way, they came to have a very close sister-like relationship. When Cashin died in 2000, Stephanie ended up with her entire fashion archive, as well as many items from Cashin's home and many of her personal effects. Stephanie is now a jewelry designer with her own company, and she wrote a gorgeous monograph about Cashin, which is called Bonnie Cashin, Chic is Where You Find It. In her home, Stephanie has rooms full of Bonnie Cashin coats, dresses, purses, and more. But weirdly, her favorite piece is actually a cardboard box. To find out why, stay tuned. So for those who might not be familiar with Bonnie Cashin and who she was, tell us kind of in, the, in a nutshell what impact she had on American fashion, what her legacy is. She is among the most significant, the most innovative designers of the 20th century in American fashion. She's considered a mother of American sportswear. Uh, she really is credited with not only a tremendously creative and um, attention-getting career, but really introducing elements that are now common coin in fashion today. So it ranges from the concept of having seasonless wardrobes, the idea of layering, which was a term and a concept that she introduced. So just imagine that. Even the word layering wasn't used in fashion. She also was a key proponent of using industrial hardware for as closures on garments and on accessories. And that's another term that she introduced into the fashion lexicon, hardware. So it's these massive concepts, as well as just the influential aesthetic that she has. So she is one of the most enduring and influential designers of the 20th century. And she did most of her designing. Well, obviously, she she started out designing for dance companies and designing in Hollywood for movies. And then Mm -hmm. most of her, her designing through her own company was in the fifties, sixties and seventies. Right. It's her, really her career almost covers a century because her creative life, it started when she was such a young girl. Her mother was a dressmaker. When she was in high school, she had her first job, which as you mentioned was uh, costumes for chorus girls in the teens and the 20s. And then she continued with that through the 30s. She started in ready to wear in the 30s and was making uh, quite a name for herself. She was uh, she received a number of major accolades, including designing for the war effort, 
She was um, handpicked by Mayor LaGuardia to do that. She was uh, featured in national Coca-Cola advertisements as a celebrity. She was she'd really gained a lot of notoriety even at that very early stage in her career. And then she did go to Hollywood in the 40s. She was at 20th Century Fox for almost a decade and costumed uh, approximately 100 films. Laura, King, <laughs> Anna and the King of Siam, and A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, Snake Pit, um, really incredible cinematic classics. And then at mid-century, after the war, she decided that American fashion needed her. She was absolutely sickened by what was... Um, what was coming out of Paris as the latest look, the new look. She thought that this was a ridiculous idea for women who were on the go, who now had a very different presence in contemporary life. She wanted women to be able to dress with ease and elegance. And she really took this on as a mission. It was certainly a creative endeavor, and she was an artist first and foremost, but she was very focused on designing for the modern globetrotting woman. So that did start right at mid-century, and then she officially retired in 1985. She dissolved her company, Bonnie Cash and Designs, Inc. And what was the new look that she didn't like? Literally Dior's new look. Literally, the just and yards and like? yards. It was a massive amount of yardage that was used. It was a very important thing for the French couture, and it was important for French manufacturers to use massive amounts of fabric to have this tiny whittled waist and these uh, dramatic swirling skirts, to put it very simply. And she went to Paris in 1949, and she said, you can't stuff a dress weighing 20 pounds into an overnight bag. She just thought it was absurd that this would be, uh, it was really uh, going back to another era and to a romance of another era and also to a restriction on women's ability to function that she felt was was, was out, completely out of place with contemporary life in the middle of the 20th century. Cool very critical of it her writings on it some of which I put in the book were um were just as harsh as you could possibly imagine she had absolutely no patience for what was going on and the fawning over that as the quote-unquote new look for women at that point in time and what was it about her and well we're going to get more into her personality and you knew her Mm -hmm. but what was it about her personality that made her think like women shouldn't have to sort of be in these almost corseted clothes. She she was just, uh, she was fascinated by contemporary life. She was fascinated by the ability to travel. She thought that the world, it was, uh, she wrote extensively on this. The world was becoming smaller and smaller, meaning that you could start your day in one part of the country and end it in another. Uh, she, was, she was there for the advent of jet travel. She designed the first flight attendant uniforms when when jet passenger jets became available in the late 50s and she was one of the first people to travel that way to be going from country to country to start start your day in one country and be in another one by the end of the day so she thought this idea of being mobile of being modern of being able to physically move about and do whatever you wanted to do without being encumbered by your clothing was something that was sorely lacking in the fashion world. And she set out to fix it. But it was largely based on her own taste as a globetrotter and really wanting to travel the world, which she did so um, independently. She wasn't married. She was. Um, she really was just a fearless explorer in that way. 
and she wanted the wardrobe that you could um, you could don and doff as you needed. And that was part of the layering idea was that you could have all these layers so that as the temperature changed during a day or as it changed according to where you were going or even to change from day to night, that you had the options. You weren't changing your entire outfit based on your activity, but that you had this really um, almost kinetic art as your wardrobe and, and that you were able to separates was absolutely was key mixed and match separates was something that she was really um focused on and had to fight for man to tell her manufacturers to dye things in coordinating colors uh and contrasting colors so that women could choose palettes that they wanted you've written about how bonnie saw herself more as a fine artist than as someone who was in the commercial fashion world. And as a result, she wasn't really a great fit for the fashion industry. She often um, had disagreements with people, had sort of difficult working relationships with people. Um, tell me more about that and, and how she was different. She was always designing things that were meant to evolve together as a collection and so women who did wear her clothes were extremely loyal. They would build their wardrobe over time, over decades even. You will find cash and pieces now in the secondary market that, that are either pristine because they were so treasured um, or that are just worn to bits because they were almost exclusively what, what some women would wear. And so she really wanted to work around the, the quintessential fashion system. She never abruptly changed course. She stuck to the same principles uh, in terms of color, texture, quality. This, what she called this, um, this cross-fertilization of sartorial concepts from around the world and throughout time. All of her clothes are based on types of garments that have been around for centuries and she liked the simplicity. She always wanted to get down to the elegant solution, the the simplest possible design that you could have. And that was going to, so that a woman could, she could also style it and adapt it and really make it her own. There were never these fixed rigid garments that required any infrastructure. And she 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 just stuck to those very basic concepts of dress and then as an artist was able to continue to find these endless variations on her preferred themes it's really extraordinary if you don't if you don't look at a label or if you don't know the clothes um in in terms of a, a comprehensive historic in a comprehensive historical way it's almost impossible to date when these clothes were done because they do not relate to broader historical trends. Not to say that she didn't start them. She did her first mini skirts in the late 50s. Those didn't hit, you know, swinging 60s. <laughs> it was ways into the 60s before that became a scandal. But she had been doing them for years and years and years. Wearing a knee-high boot with a skirt or with a dress, that was something that she considered one of her great contributions to fashion. She took that very seriously. She had started doing that with her models in the 40s. And it was unheard of to wear. a, And it still sometimes gets a headline about a, a boot being a trend to wear <laughs> fashionably. Um, wearing leather as a fashion material. She started that in the 50s because the first uh, manufacturing partner was a leather specialist. 
and he wanted to do an experimental collection in leather. She designed it, and the headlines, uh, New York Times described it as ladies. They looked like they were from Mars, and there were all sorts of articles about how it wasn't just for the country anymore, and it wasn't just for kind of the biker set. It was now women in leather in the city. There were society columns that would talk about their, oh, a, a so-and-so showed up at the theater wearing a full-length leather coat by Bonnie Cashin. It was so unheard of to use leather in that very sophisticated, high-style way. Same with mohair later in the 50s and um, became such an accepted fabric in fashion, but she was the first one to use it. So it's um, it's it's amazing to the scope of what she accomplished and the personal way in which she did it and the standards that she upheld. It's, she's a constant inspiration and it's just a marvel. It's an absolute marvel, everything that she did and how relevant her work is, it, how relevant it continues to be. I was there thinking. is not a season where I don't see, I don't, yeah, there isn't a season where I don't see her designs, certainly her concepts, but even really just, her designs, reiterated, a kind way to put it, but reiterated on the runway. I was thinking when I read your book, those, the tote bags that she designed that have now been replicated mm -hmm. and imitated so many times and they were based on shopping bags, that to right. design something that simple is actually so difficult. Like to design something complicated is actually easier than just distilling Absolutely. something to its most basic elements. And that right. is such like everyone carries bags like that. And it still has like great distinction. Yes. I know. I know. And and it's it is incredible. She said the shopping bag is the best design bag in the world. And so what she did was to take she used to make her own shopping bags. She would um buy certain papers that she liked. She would make her own shopping bags for toting things between her New York apartment and her country house in upstate and then when she when she became the first designer for coach so coach was coach was launched in 1957 starting in 1960 they um, the owners miles and lillian khan approached bonnie and said we want to start designing women's handbags and we want you to be the designer and bonnie had said i'm too busy i can't take on the job and they said you are the only person that we want in this position we'll wait for you so they waited for two years to launch Coach Women's Accessories. So 1962, they launched the first bags that came out. Among the first bags, there were some other designs that she had done for another company prior to that. But the shopping bag tote was doing these, it was beautiful leather and um, textile versions of shopping bags. It was something that she herself was doing for more than a decade and then brought that to Coach. It became their one of their signatures. And I think they just reissued another batch of them at least last year I, I probably again this year but they are and to, th to think about that legacy and as you said every there's uh, there's hardly a handbag manufacturer out there that doesn't have a version of that and at the time when it came out it was so revolutionary it was the new it bag meaning literally it was the first time there was an it bag <laughs> and it was um it was called fashion's new snob tote it was one of the lines from Women's Wear Daily. I remember and they did a big article on it. But just that, as you're saying, just that utilitarian shape and the simplicity of it, it absolutely startled the fashion world and has now become something that you you could find every designer's label inside of their own version of it. I also love in the book 
she is like so insanely quotable. Like, I love that she says, my, <laughs> yes. my clothes are not designed for women who think about nothing but clothes. That's like my favorite quote. Right. Like, what a great thing. Absolutely. And, and how revolutionary right. for her time. That just speaks to feminism before we had feminism. Mm-hmm. It absolutely does. And she was, she was so fiercely independent and, uh, she loved she she never thought there was a particular place that women belonged. She was equally happy to have a a housewife as well as a um as someone who is a, more of a professional like herself. She her sketches always they tell different stories of women and what they're doing. She would always always write and design her clothes first with a sketch and then she would put a little story next to it like it was a film still. It would say where this woman was going and she'd be off to DC or she'd be traveling to Palm Springs or she'd be heading overseas or she'd be picking up the kids or there were just all of these different types of women. But she wanted to design exclusively for women who were on the go, on the go. So it didn't matter if that meant that you were... um, just running around doing errands or you were traveling back and forth because of your job, but you were on the go and you were in leading a life of your own, of your own choosing. That's what she really respected and loved. So I think that is, is even more, even more to her credit that it wasn't that women had to get out of the house, but it was just to have a life that was on the go and that was really being dictated by women's own decisions and desires. And again, to not be encumbered, whether you were picking up groceries or boarding a jet. Like, I love that dog leash skirt that she had where you could Mm -hmm. latch the skirt up to make it go from long to short. That's amazing. So these were such a success. She went back to the mill in Scotland and said, I want lengths of this fabric to make for skirts. And they thought she was absolutely insane. They, they thought it was the, the strangest thing that their fabric, that mohair would be used for clothing. And she begged them to do it. They did. They ended up selling more fabric to her than they were selling in their actual blanket business. Diana Vreeland went to Paris. She saw that people were then picking up the use of mohair. Givenchy and some other designers, um, Vreeland mentioned, came back to the U.S., called Cash and said, I, I know that you started this and I need to have examples of this to rush into I think it was the November issue or something but she she immediately wanted to get those into the magazine because again it was something that was just unheard of and took off like crazy Uh, but for such a simple reason she was cold and she was stumbling up the stairs with a martini glass (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty wonderful the toggle um, uh, the toggle closure that she used on all of her designs the brass turn lock which um Coach, of course, still uses her brass turn lock, but that was uh, something that she started using because she had had a convertible in the 1940s, and she loved how she just could batten down the top of that convertible so swiftly and so securely, and she thought that that was a perfect, easy closure for women's clothes and accessories. So she started using it in the early 60s on everything that she designed. There were probably 10 different companies um, from the 60s and the 70s that use that particular closure. Coach is now the only one that's still in business decades on, but it's become such a, and that too is no longer theirs exclusively. It's something that you see on, again, almost everybody's uh, accessory designs. You see that turn lock closure, but it was specifically, hers was from 
her 1940s convertible and she ordered hers. They were not custom made. She ordered hers from automobile suppliers. So those heavy brass closures that you see on vintage Bonnie Cashin designs and vintage coach designs, those were all just industrial closures that she ordered and put on her designs. So after Bonnie died, how did you come to have the archive? Her will was very simple. It stated that the major assets, her investments, her real estate, all of that be sold and all of the money go to charity. And um, what was left, the executor said, Bonnie wants you to have this. And initially they asked what things I wanted. I'd asked for a box that she'd painted on. That was the first thing I saw in her studio. And that says, um, make ready. Making ready is a very private thing. I will know when I'm ready to know. It will come when it's ready to come. And I will sing and dance. And so is this just wonderful uh, it's a little bit of a poem and it's, and it's very much this sort of found art piece, just this torn up cardboard box that she painted this message on. And it was something that she'd written in her journal. I've also seen it in poem form and her doors from her graffiti hallway. She wrote quotes from her intellectual heroes that lined the entire hallway in her UN Plaza apartment. So I asked for the doors. Could I please have the doors taken off their hinges? Could I please have those? Because I always considered those as sort of the, you know, it's a room-sized work of art that she did. And could I have the box? And even in those requests, I thought, well, you know, that probably won't happen. And then the conversation started that Bonnie would want you to have this. Bonnie wants you to have this. And in the end, I ended up with her complete design archive and also the majority of her personal effects. So it includes furniture and art and things she collected on her travel. It, it's really no exaggeration to say it was like a living history museum with everything that was given to me. So yes, the design archive is one part of it, but it also went much, much further than that. And it was inheriting... Um, her life. It was inheriting the material culture of her life, not just her professional life. So where is it now? It's in your house. Really, they're kind of these jewel box rooms that are just full of thousands of designs. It's coats and cashmeres and handbags and gloves and thousands of press images and um, it's and things that she collected on her travels in terms of um, especially in the 50s when she was traveling in Asia. So silk robes and kimono and things that she picked up at a time where you could only get them really from from traveling yourself. Now we live full time in Minneapolis. And so there is I have a coat for every single raindrop and snowflake that will ever fall on my shoulders. I can dress specifically for every weather condition you could ever encounter. And that was something that Bonnie really excelled at and focused on. She was so interested in um, in how weather impacted dress, how to dress beautifully and elegantly, even when you have to deal with harsh conditions. And so she has things like her chiller, what she called her chiller killer coats, which are these complete fur lined um, candy colored leather coats that there is no question it gets below a certain temperature here. And I am in one of those every day and so comfortable. And I, there's never a shiver to be found. I mean, I really am very, very prepared to deal with the Minnesota winter because of that. Um, there was a, there was a story 
from I think it was Gustav Tassel who'd come who was in Minneapolis and for for some a fashion event and he had joked and this was in the 60s he had joked at the time that Minneapolis had the best looking hookers because they all bought Bonnie Cash and Coats which of course were major investments but <laughs> was that all the high class escorts <laughs> could be seen in Bonnie Cash and Coats oh, it was my. just uh, absolutely absolutely hilarious but I don't, I, I don't doubt for a second that that was the case, that it was the highest of high fashion and it also functioned beautifully. So things like that on a practical level, I love. I love being able to just grab um, grab her coats, wear those with everything. But things do change over time. There are things that maybe I haven't worn for years or I've never worn that I will suddenly discover. There was just a, there was a gala recently that was, the theme was the Silk Road and I wore one of her antique silk robes that she'd collected in the fifties when she was, um, was traveling in Asia and there are things like that. So it's hard to have just a specific favorite, but I, I was just at a, um, a derby party and she was a big collector of hats from all the countries she visited. So I, I wore one of her gorgeous hats, but every country she went to, she would, she would collect hats. And, um, I had a milliner out here recently and, and she was giving me some clues on some of the stitching and some of the craftsmanship with these hats to to maybe I'd finally identify where some of them come from. But she would be featured heavily in the press because she traveled so widely. She was such a globetrotter. Um, the Washington, I'm, I'm forgetting which, but one of the Washington papers, the paper of record in D.C., they would print her travelogues. She would basically write an account of where she'd travel and then there would be photos uh, accompanying that of her in her hats. So now let's talk about your jewelry company and the jewelry that you design. I'm, I'm looking at this one piece that you have on your website, the Guardian Lions necklace, um, which is a statement necklace with these two lions facing each other. And it, it's a gold collar with a carnelian diamond and these jade beads that are hanging down below the lions. It's totally this very ornate piece. And I think of Bonnie Cashin as as having a totally different aesthetic, um, you know, being very pared down, simple, easygoing elegance. So tell me about how Bonnie Cashin has influenced your business. The structure of the business, even from the very name, her her company name, Bonnie Cashin Designs Inc., mine is Stephanie Lake Design. Uh, we both have I have a home studio as she did throughout her entire life. I work in complete seclusion. I don't have anyone uh, throughout the design process that is an assistant or that is part of that process. I really need to have the privacy and I need to work as an artist in my studio. I, as much as she did, I really avoid the conventions of my industry and I don't do, um, trade shows and trunk shows and all of these things I've I've been very fortunate in it's been a decade that I've had the company and I've been very fortunate in amassing a following of women who are very loyal to me who collect my things over time who treasure them but also wear them every day I have some clients who have rooms now devoted to their Stephanie Lake collections I um I design only what I personally love and want to wear. So it's it it goes on and on and on the list of things that are exactly the way the Bonnie operated. The pieces themselves reflect uh centuries of adornment and 
certainly a good century of different materials. And I always think of it as things that were never meant to rub shoulders with one another. You look at one, one of my designs and there will be 10 different um, types of things or 10 different types of source materials and countries of origin and different eras. And that was something that she really focused on too, was using these very traditional elements and then mixing them through her own filter and coming up with something that was distinctively hers. You write in the book that Bonnie had a tumultuous marriage for five years when she was young, and then she never married again, but she had a string of boyfriends throughout her life, including this one boyfriend, Carl Dorn, with whom she kind of pictured having a a so-called conventional life, getting married, having children, but he wasn't really comfortable being married to a woman who put her career first and had such serious career ambitions. Um, And so they broke up and it was very painful. And you have her love letters in the archive What is it like to have something that's so private and so personal and so painful? It's, it's heartbreaking. And it's, it's part of this legacy with not only inheriting the design collection and wonderful works of art and all these just extravagant, glorious things, but at the same time, it's also inheriting secrets and, it's inheriting her most private thoughts. And it was really, it took me a long time to decide what was really relevant to put into her life story and into the book, into this permanent document and what was really too private. And luckily I had her niece to, to talk to about a number of these things. And it was my, the just greatest joy in my life after she read the book. And she said, you know, Aunt Bonnie, she would have she would have loved it. She would have loved the book. So I did want it. I didn't want it to look like it was just a completely rosy picture throughout because there was tremendous sacrifice and heartbreak and battles waged in order to have the career that she did. The music and editing for this podcast was provided by my co-producer, my brother, Andrew Logan. More of his work can be found at logansound.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love it if you'd subscribe, rate us in your podcast app of choice, and tell your friends. For more photos and details from this and our other episodes, visit CollectingCulturePodcast.com. Or show us your own collection by tagging Collecting Culture Podcast on Instagram. We'll be back next month with another collector.